welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you for tuning in to episode 29. And um, before I turn to my guest this week, uh, so much to talk about. But let me talk very briefly about Counterpunch, as I always do, because, um, you know, this podcast is, it's not really just my podcast. This is really Counterpunch. This is part of a broader project uh that Counterpunch is not just a website, it's not just a magazine, it's also a space. It's a space online and uh, in print media as well, where a certain viewpoint can be articulated that is truly independent. And what I mean by independent is independent of the mainstream, independent of the corporations, independent uh, of the foundations and of Wall Street, independent of the pseudo-alternative media, and all of those others who present themselves as an alternative viewpoint and then quite often parrot the talking points of the establishment. I think a lot of uh, a lot of pseudo-alternative media falls into that category, but not Counterpunch. You go on Counterpunch, you'll find opposing views on Syria, opposing views on, uh, on Bernie Sanders, opposing views on uh, many, many issues of, uh, I think, the highest importance today. And I really appreciate that. I really respect respect that. I like the fact that I go to Counterpunch and I find stuff that I disagree with, find stuff that I think is amazing and everything in between. Um, And I think that that's important. Counterpunch should be supported. Pick up a subscription to the magazine through the website. Excellent, excellent, excellent resource. Uh, A subscription to the magazine. Also, of course, you can help this podcast by giving us a positive review on iTunes. Uh, My website, of course, stopimperialism.org if you want to follow my other work. But let me turn now to my guest this week, um, Pascal Robert. If you don't know his work, I highly recommend that you follow it. Um, he is a writer and a blogger. You can find his work regularly at Black Agenda Report, Breaking Brown, Huffington Post, and his website or his blog, thoughtmerchant.wordpress.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at PRobert06 or PRobert06 on Twitter. Pascal, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Eric, thank you for having me on your show. I've been uh, uh, an admirer of your work for quite a while, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to discuss uh, some of the current rumblings in the, uh, the political you know, environment. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And, and rumblings indeed they are. Um, so let's begin with a very interesting, um, well, a very interesting subject, not something that, um, you know, is dominating the headlines exactly, but maybe you could give us a little bit of a rundown about Ta-Nehisi Coates and, uh, his recent, his recent article, what that was about, why uh, you feel a critique of Coates, Coates's arguments and Coates's uh, position, both in his recent piece, but also his position in general in the media sphere. Um, what is your analysis of Coates's recent arguments and Coates in general? Okay, well, um, first of all, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a, published a piece on uh, January 19, 2016 in The Atlantic, entitled, Why Precisely is Bernie Sanders Against Reparations? Now, to understand uh, the significance of this piece, one has to look at the political context of what is going going on right now in the Democratic primary. As we know, in the current Democratic primary, uh, Bernie Sanders is advancing in polls in both Iowa 
and, and New Hampshire, and much to the consternation of the Clinton forces, their, uh, their, their ascendancy to an easy nomination that they may have possibly thought at one time, even though they deny they believe that, is not seeming to be the case. And what I think is causing even more uh, dismay to people in the Clinton camp is that there seems to be a not only a generational shift in the liberal to left political spaces in terms of supporting Sanders, but there is a generational shift in the African-American Democratic Party constituency as well, because what we're seeing is that under 40, under 40 or under 35 African-Americans, particularly college-educated, seem to be gra- gravitating to Bernie Sanders in, in larger numbers, particularly in terms of if you monitor social media commentary, in terms of his popularity through his uh, surrogate Killer Mike. And what we're finding is that because of the demographic importance that millennial African-Americans played in Barack Obama's election in 2008 and 2012, and considering that based on the electoral map as we have it today, in key swing states, the African-American vote would be very crucial to a Democratic Party victory. Sanders being able to gain a loyal following amongst African-American millennials presents a very, very precarious dilemma for Hillary Clinton because the question arises then that even if she does win the nomination, what is to say that they are going to naturally naturally carry over their allegiance to her? So that background needs to be laid out there so we can understand the context of what uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' current piece is and why particularly him being this individual is so significant and what this particularly means. First of all, the year before last, wrote a piece about reparations and basically making the argument as to why he felt reparations was important for African Americans. And for those who do not know, reparations is basically an, uh, uh, an ideological concept that has been circulating in the African American social and political spaces for since at least since the 60s and maybe some say before that, that argued that in compensation for the lost and uncompensated labor of, of African-American slaves combined with the, uh, the segregation and the, the lack of economic opportunity caused by Jim Crow segregation, that African-Americans deserve some type of economic or social compensation for the la- the, those lost years of capital labor capital and, and social capital, if you will, that were denied to them. Now, the, the, the theory has been debated in African-American circles for years. It's not a new concept. Some consider it a radical concept. Some don't consider it a radical concept, as a matter of fact, because John Conyers has had a bill, uh, a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, asking for a study of reparations for a while. And many people, for example, some of my uh, my co-writers at Black Agenda Report, as Bruce Dixon, one of the things that he says about people who claim for reparations is that it's always a great way to get your black cards stamped. In other words, whenever a black politician is being questioned for various dubious activities he may be doing to the detriment of the black community, every now and then he might pop up and say, we need reparations as a means to kind of get his racial bona fides justified. <laughs> his, you know, street, the, his, his, his black his street, street cred. His black street cred. Yeah. Now, and I'm not going to say that all people who are advocates of, of, of reparations are that uh, duplicitous, but there are people who are sincere 
sincere advocates. There has been uh, legal research and economic research discussing, you know, reparations. So this is not something that is a kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, a street corner, you know, uh, you know, intellectual discourse among segments of various, you know, types of nationalists in the black community. This is a legitimate intellectual thesis or inquiry that has been in the black community. And what Ta-Nehisi Coates did is that understanding that he writes for Atlanta, The Atlantic, which is a, uh, you know, a mainstream liberal, I would say actually neoliberal publication, which has a predominantly white audience. Yep. He wrote a piece basically arguing why African-Americans are, in, are deserving of reparations and why it should be investigated. The piece had profound resonance in uh, not only amongst African Americans. I mean, they're, they're not the majority readers of the Atlantic. But what happened is that the, in the white liberal intelligentsia, this concept started to to really, really, really take hold because I don't think that they were uh, really uh, clear as to how much reparations is not really a fringe concept in black social and political discourse. For example, uh, Randall Robertson wrote a book in 2000, I believe, called The Debt, which was making similar arguments as, as Coates about the need for reparations. So I think that when that was presented in the uh, on, in online spaces that, you know, particularly for younger generations of folk who are not familiar with this history, they were like, yeah, and understand the context, too. This is in the, in, in the rise of all of these uh, police uh, assassinations and killings, you know, police brutalities, you know, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter is kicking off. I think it was actually a little bit before Black Lives Matter. Well, they might be contemporary in time. But, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the rise of the uh, Black Rage social media internet industrial complex as i as i call it uh, was was very much in play and you know everyone was tapping into all these various uh literary manifestations of black rage online and i really want to talk later on about how coach fits into that and what his role is in terms of being uh you know making black rage pop culture chic for the white liberal establishment so the piece basically exploded on the scene and you know many people thought it was a great piece he talks about the history of housing segregation and how it denied blacks of wealth which is true the factual arguments he makes about how particularly jim crow and what is more nuanced about Coates' analysis in that piece and i will give him credit for that and actually i agree with him because i've actually said this myself many times is that he doesn't really talk about reparations for slavery and i think one of the mistakes that people who are proponents of reparations make is talking about slavery because not that the labor extraction from blacks during slavery and the wealthy created for american capitalism is not justified, but it's so divorced from the contemporary uh, psyche of Americans that they're like, you know, my parents were even here. I'm Italian. I mean, why are you going to talk about slavery? We had nothing to do with that. But when you explain that the economic denial of capital accumulation that was allowed to African Americans because of Jim Crow is, is, you know, even more stunning to the contemporary economic position than slavery, then it brings a much more uh, a modern analysis of the reparations argument, which is something that I've been saying and a lot of other people who are more adept at making these arguments have been saying as well. Uh, my positions on reparations are, are, are a little bit more nuanced. I'm not opposed and necessarily for. My question is more about the practicality of how it gets done. If you're going to bring it up and not talk about how it gets done, then why bring it up at all? So, yeah. <laughs> he, he, you know, he, so he, write, he writes the reparations piece. 
Bernie Sanders, uh, in an interview that I saw it on an online African American publication called The Root, um, which is uh, you know I think it was owned by the Washington Post, it was sponsored. Uh, Root is controlled, I think, by Henry Louis Gates. So I think you can tell what their politics are. They're more Democratic, mainstream, liberal on the you know the kind of black, black liberal kind of side. And, and the interviewer who was white asks Bernie Sanders, "Are you in favor of reparations?" And Sanders flat out and says, "No." I think it would be too divisive, but he talks about how policies like, you know, uh, improving uh, the economic position of African-Americans with jobs, infrastructure jobs, free college education, uh, 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 you know, uh, issue, issues of tangible economic uh, uh, stimulation, investing in cities, job creation, and how those things would be better to addressing the conditions of, of, of African-Americans and Latinos than a very divisive uh, thing like reparations. What is interesting, and, and I, I will actually agree that Sanders' answer was politically inarticulate. Not because what his beliefs, I do believe he should be true to his sentiments. He doesn't support reparations, that's fine. But this and I am not a Sanders supporter. I want to I want to make that clear from the beginning, so I don't want people to to, to think that I'm I'm actually doing the job of Sanders in taking down coach. But I, I'm trying to be objective in my analysis here. Is that in that Sanders demonstrates consistently from my observation a certain tone deafness in terms of his political rhetoric and use of language when addressing people that are ideologically considered the left that he may find problematic in terms of their politics. And because of his unawareness of how the reparations subject has surfaced as such a hot and button issue in the black community as a result of Coates' article that it's become frontline center debate in, in, in African-American spaces, he should have been more adept in answering the question by saying something to the effect that one or two ways. One, I think the historical merit of African-Americans being economically not compensated for their history in the United States and denied opportunities is justified. And ideologically, the concept of reparations is something that I think I agree with. I just find that the political capacity to make this a reality is impractical, and perhaps I would bring it to public dis- debate. Let me jump in. Let me, let me jump in very quickly because I just want to... I want to pose a question and kind of lead lead the discussion in this direction. So when I read the article, I found it very interesting. There, there's two things happening there. On the one hand, Coates is attacking Sanders, there, obviously. I mean, that's that's apparent. In, a, in another sense, Coates is also, in, in, in some senses, kind of attacking the left, attacking socialism, attacking, you know, which Bernie Sanders is not a socialist in my, in my view. He can call himself whatever he wants, but that's a separate issue. But I want to also pose another question here. How is it that Coates is able to simultaneously undermine and attack Sanders on this position and at the same time refer to Obama's presidency as a beautiful, once-in-a-lifetime, never-gonna-happen-again kind of moment. In other words, Obama, who has done less than nothing for the black community, who has presided over eight years of a presidency in which black uh, black people in the black community has lost ground economically, has lost ground in terms of pretty much every indicator of social and economic and even to an extent political status, all of that is somehow not part of 
of Coates's critique, and is that what you're getting at in the sense of Coates being, in effect, the sentinel for the liberal Democratic Party left? What what what, what, what Ta-Nehisi Coates represents is basically what I remember the piece I wrote, the danger of the Black cultural tour guide, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and the danger of the Black cultural tour guide, is that he is the establishment chosen voice of black angst. In other words, he has been deemed the go-to guy who is the essential authentic representation of, uh, you know, you know, young, not too young, but, you know, like that, you know, the African-American angst and concern. And what is particularly noxious about this role is that, number one, it's fundamentally undemocratic because The Atlantic is a you know, predominantly white corporate publication. They did not in, dis, you know, discuss with the black community if they feel that Coates is a viable representative. They created Ta-Nehisi Coates. He, he, they manufactured him. He is a product of their, you know... Wait, they didn't know, have a black people sweepstakes at the Atlantic? To, no, to no, no, exactly. You know, I, didn't get, I didn't get a phone call of someone <laughs> polling me yeah. and saying, should... should it's, the Dave become... Chappelle, it's the Dave Chappelle race draft again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, there, was, there, was no, there, there are no mechanisms for that in, in the black community because in the eyes of the power elite, black people don't deserve to have a role in deciding who their leaders are mm-hmm. so what, what happens is the media tends to focus on people who have seeming some seeming level of viability and basically heightens the scrutiny on them and they become deemed as the black leader and what even though Coates may not be a political leader but he has basically become considered the, the the legitimate literary voice of black angst and black and and black rage in this time of neoliberalism and the rise of police brutality and this seeming time of the rise of reactionary racism he is he is the the essence of authentic blackness so what this piece the thing that this piece says to me is that Coates is now fully proudly taking that mantle to the point where now he basically he feels that he can dispense to the black community who he thinks they or quote-unquote we should or should not be scrutinizing or supporting or giving our allegiance to politically. And in terms of his whole shtick about Sanders and white supremacy, and there's a really interesting line in his piece, there's several ones, when he says that white that reparations is the is the essential key to fighting white supremacy. A little interesting note is that Tom Hesey Coates, the man who is so in tune with black angst, in 2010 wrote a piece where he publicly stated that he was against reparations. Oh my, my, my. So you're going to tell me that for the majority of your writing career as being the spokesperson for blackness, you were against what you now say is the essential tool for fighting white, fighting white supremacy? So what you're telling me is the U.S. were as politically tone deaf to your blackness that you accused Bernie Sanders of being up until 2010, yet you were still considered the racial spokesman of the day. And some people will say, well, of course, evolved. And, I would, and this, is, this, this is my my response to the, the whole well, Coast evolved since 2010. Reparations is not something that people who are, you know, moderately politically savvy about evolve on on the black community. Uh, quick, you, in other words, it's something that you pretty much see the, 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 the discourse about and you have the basis and your foundations or your feelings pretty much set. A, a total transformation of you know, from saying I don't support reparations, which is how he starts his 2010 piece, to saying that it is the essential tool in fighting white supremacy is not something that I would expect to be in a, within a four or five or six year 
periphery yeah. of black political thinking. Right. In other words, what I'm saying is that this guy basically is contriving his racial ideology to fit the moment in a way where, you know, and when I said, when I read the reparations piece, I'll be very, very, very honest what my first reaction is. I said, this piece is a dodge and an obfuscation. It's a dodge because at the, in, in the seven, sixth or seventh year of the first black president, which Ta-Nehisi Coates heralded as being this wonderful expression of American yeah, political exactly. expectation, black people are having the highest child, black child poverty rates in 40 years. Yep. The black wealth gap to white, to white wealth is still damaged significantly. You have cops, cops blowing black kids in the face away every, you know, every other city every day. So Ta-Nehisi Coates is seeing his Obama experiment collapse in front of his face so what does he what does he do what did bruce dixon say how do i validate my black card reparations reparations you know that's it's a great point i i gotta tell you i i i don't know that i was thinking about it in quite those terms and i i i have to agree with you now here's another question that i have and it, it can be problematic uh for a not uh, for a for a person who's not a person of color to bring up this question, so I'm going to pose it to you because I think it's important. Is Coates essentializing race here? In other words, for Coates to become the quote unquote, you know, the the the, the black cultural tour guide or the unofficial spokesperson of uh, Black America, while he sits in France eating, you know, expensive cheese and going to an expensive health club and whatever else was documented in those pieces, uh, you know, and in his interviews. Is he really able to even be a voice? And whose voice? In other words, is this bourgeois? black man living in France really able to even be the voice of working class black people? Or is that an illusion that the uh, establishment is presenting to black America and especially to white liberal America? That illusion is the same illusion that you can ask. Answer the question is how exactly is, uh, you know, uh, say uh, Al Sharpton, the leader of the black community. This is what is always done. In but at least, team. but 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 to be fair, at least, and I despise Al Sharpton, but at least Al Sharpton has some, you know, grounding some, in a community, yeah. in a black community, yeah. you know, and did work on the streets, organizing work and whatever. I mean, yeah, he was a snitch and all the other awful things we could say about Sharpton, but at least he had some community uh, engagement. I yes. don't see that Coates even has that. Right, right, right. In other words, what you're saying is that in the, 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 the manufactured black leader trope has been upped in ante to now saying we don't even need you to have like a few followers in Harlem that come yeah. to your church or mosque or, or temple or exactly. whatever other thing. We just need to basically give you the voice of the black angst. As long and as you have black skin, you're black, and you can speak no, for black not, no, people. It's, it's, not, it's not as long as you have black skin, because you know why? Because John McWhorter, who was black and has black skin, would never get that card. You have to understand something. There has to be... It, it's not that simple. Well, same, well, well same. I, just to be, I just want to clarify what I mean. In order for them to anoint you in their, from their perspective, as long as you're black... That's a that you you can speak for black people as long as your views are sanctioned. Right. Well, first of all, as long as you are black, it's as long as you are black and as long as you are black and you have a politics. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's my. You point. have a politics. Yes, that's my that point. seems seems to be in line with a certain authentic yes. uh, black 
political kind of uh, worldview that is in line with what I, what I call and what is known by a man who wrote a very good book, The Golden Age of Black Nationalism, which talks about the history of black This is what I call petite bourgeois black nationalism. Yes. What is petite bourgeois mm-hmm. black nationalism? Petite bourgeois black nationalism is not of the traditional proletariat considered black nationalism like Marcus Garvey, Louis Farrakhan, going back to Booker T. Washington, so on and so forth. Uh, petite bourgeois black nationalism is the talented 10th variety of black nationalism where those who are lettered in the black community are the, the the correct arbiters of the affairs of black folk in order to quote unquote engage in the vile trope of racial uplift to keep the masses knowing so Coates is someone I would I would say is not a black nationalist in the traditional kind of mainstream what Adolf Reed calls soapbox black nationalist or what my editor of Black Agenda Report calls pork chop black nationalist. <laughs> he is not of that type, and I would probably argue that he has a great deal of uh, of uh, dislike for that type of black nationalism. But he is of a type that many people don't even recognize in the black community, which is the kind of petite bourgeois black nationalism. This is the black nationalism where you see someone who is a member of, uh, you know, say, you know, uh, a a black petite bourgeois membership organization or the Urban League or the NAACP who's getting financed by, you know, charter school supporting entities who can go and say, listen, you know our people, you know we we know these public schools ain't no good. We got to support these charter schools now. You know, know, that, that kind of Petite bourgeois black nationalism, which again is basically black elites, college educated and trained, or or literate or you know writers who broker black political opinion, shaped and viewed by their 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 elite kind of petite bourgeois position in society, are the determiners of black political ideology because they are the ones who are given avenues by the white power structure to speak on behalf of black people. So his essentialism stems from him, his ability to create an essentialist voice of blackness comes from him tapping into all of the traditional tropes that petite bourgeois black nationalists uh, harp on, you know, it's us against them. You know, petite bourgeois, petite bourgeois black nationalists are the type who will say, oh, look at Susan Rice. Isn't it wonderful that we have a black woman who was so high up in the Obama administration? Meanwhile, this woman is decimating the African continent left and right. In other yeah. words, when one, of, when one of the people from this class elevates to a position where they are basically a, co- you know, a comprador for empire, a collaborator with empire, it is the role of uplifting the race yes. that becomes more important than the actual political functionality of that person. And this is what allows Ta-Nehisi Coates to say, I love Obama, while he's droning African children in Somalia and putting more military bases in the, on the African continent than we've had in, 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 in modern history. This is what allows him him to to claim the racial anger when his friend Prince Jones is murdered by a black cop in a city running by black people in the town where the black cops are 41% of the police force. Because what happens is that this petite bourgeois nationalism neutralizes an analysis of class in the black community that demonstrates that these petite bourgeois Negroes are usually the most duplicitous and damaging to the black community, and that they use this racial kinship, kinship fallacy to cover the amount of harm they do. They say, come on, we're all one, folk. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine last night, and she was saying, you know, a lot of black people don't believe we should criticize other black people in public. And I said, that's why the black community gets screwed over regularly, because we had that, that's exactly why, because this 
illusion of racial kinship. Like it's all us against the man. Meanwhile, the cat that you think is, is you against the man is getting paid by the man to screw you over. Yeah, you exactly. So, so, so what happens is that he is in line with that whole rancid way of thinking that we at Black Agenda Report make a very, very good uh, attempt to neutralize and, 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 and stomp out because it is a massive inhibition to the political uh, development and education of the black community because it, it denies people to understand that there are a class of black people in the community who are used as what, what we know on the left as the comprador class. The comprador class or the collaborator are a class of people within your ranks who you think are basically working to your best interest but are actually working in the interest of the power elite and the status quo to keep you oppressed. Now, but because Pat, you think, go ahead, go I'm ahead. sorry, I, I just we got to go to break here in a minute. But before we do, I want to ask one other question about something that something that you raised and you you mentioned Adolf Reed and. Um, I want to ask this question in relation to well, I, I know you're obviously familiar, you know, from familiar with his views, his work. Um, he's talked a lot about the danger of, I guess, what could be called purely identity politics. And I wonder if you could speak to how Adolf Reed described the danger of identity politics versus the sort of essentialization that you're talking about in somebody like Coates. Not a problem. You want me to address that now? Yeah, yeah, go no. Go, go, right, go right ahead, and then we'll go to. Well, break. basically, what Adolf Reed is saying is that identity politics is class politics, but it's a class politics of the black elite. Because what it is is that it basically says that my blackness is basically means that I have a special kind of oppression. That means that I have a voice that demands that I be represented at the table. Well, how does that work for Susan Rice? How does that work for, uh, say, the guy who's the, the head of Homeland Security now, who is black, who's deporting two million Latin? Latinos across across the country. How does, in other words, it creates an illusion that your racial identity, your mere blackness alone, creates an authentic. Uh, uh, category of oppression that gives you insight, and as a result, you should be trusted as 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 a spokesperson for your race because you will do well for them, and that you actually are representative of that suffering. When most of these are college-educated Negroes who are completely divorced from the life of poor and working-class Black people, so what it does is that identity politics becomes a mechanism of creating what Adolf Reed calls a PMC, uh, a a a a, uh, a a professional managerial class of blacks who are basically used by the power elite as managers of, of, of the affairs of poor and working class black folk. I call them brokers. They are the brokers of the affairs of black people and their positionality, their viability is contingent on their ability to control the Bantu stands and to represent the angsts and the angers when necessary to make sure that things don't get out of control. And what Ta-Nehisi Coates' piece does, it kind of represents that because he completely neglects the fact that, you know, the left is not this big amorphous band of white folk with, with you know, tie-dye t-shirts and, 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 and Birkenstocks. There is a radical black left. And as we were talking about Glenn Ford, editor of Black and General Report, says the black left is the vanguard of the left in the United States. So he's talking about, in his opening statement, he says, you know, for those of us, quote-unquote, who are interested in the way the left prioritizes its various radicalism. Who's the us he's talking about? Is he talking about black people? He said, so, so what you're saying is that for black people who are looking at this left full of white folk, we're trying to see, yeah, let's see what these white lefts who, leftists who really think they're going to try to get us to agree with them really think, without realizing that there is a 
vibrant black left who is at the vi- vanguard of the uh, of political struggle in the left that has positions on all of this. But because Coates understands that the black community politically has been so divorced from black radical left discourse, he understands that he can he can harness the political conversation within the, the black petite bourgeois liberal frame and say, well, you know, you know, it's we, you know, we, we know what Hillary has done wrong, but this Sanders guy, these radicals, and you know, the, the black left, as you know, particularly as a black, we're not Sanders stands at all. Sanders is no radical to us at all. As a matter of fact, most of us think he's quite status quo, to be quite honest. So, again. Coast, and this is a guy who, by the way, who is a son of a Black Panther, is very adept at playing on the uh, the understanding of where the sensibilities are in the Black community and creating this illusion that it's all that big space of whiteness out there and those people out there, you know, they, they don't represent us. And Bernie Sanders is just giving you reason, even reason why, because Bernie Sanders is not interested in fighting white supremacy like Hillary Clinton is, like Barack Obama, who's been a better agent of white supremacy than probably, I'd say, some of the white presidents we've recently had. I mean, so, so what are you talking about? Because Bernie Sanders does not support reparations, something that you yourself did not support, Mr. Essentialist Understanding of the Black Community (laughs) until 2010. Now you're saying, well, Bernie is not down with the essential tool that you didn't even agree with yourself. It's funny because it almost seems like it almost seems like uh, I don't think either one of us is particularly pro Bernie, but this definitely came across as not just a hit piece. I mean, look, I'm my conspiracy, my conspiracy, uh, you know, monitor is uh, buzzing when I read something like this because, of course, the Democratic Party establishment is in effect a Clinton machine, and one has to really wonder about. The timing of this article as Sanders surges in the polls, the relationship between Coates, the Atlantic, the Democratic Party establishment, Hillary Clinton. I mean, it definitely comes across as a Clinton manufactured maneuver. I mean, one of the things that I told to my to my to my 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 good friend, Yvette Cornell, who I know you've had on the show, is that uh, I said Ta-Nehisi Coates did the job that Michael Eric Dyson couldn't. Yeah, good point. In that Michael Eric Dyson wrote his book, his piece, the uh, the case for Hillary Clinton, that was a complete flop. Where he made the argument that Clinton gave us Bill Clinton gave us bad policy, Obama gave us no policy, so Hillary Clinton has got to give us good policy. I don't know where exactly <laughs> that that political algorithm uh, works in any 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 sound political spaces that you and I may 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 consider serious, but that's the argument that he was making. So uh, I would say, and you know, and I said this on social media, I said, well, Ta-Nehisi Coates is now basically uh, Michael Eric Dyson with a more eloquent pen in that he, 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 he was able to do he was able to put uh, put uh, put the, 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 the hit on Bernie Sanders and, and, and augment uh, Hillary Clinton without even mentioning Clinton really too much and doing you know putting all the Sanders political blood on the ground more effectively you know so I mean does that mean I think that uh, Coates is completely down with the with the, the Clinton cabal and their whole neoliberal corporatist imperialist agenda. Uh, I, I I think that uh, Coates is basically you know a black liberal 
you know, and that's my my major my critique. I mean, I don't like liberals of any of any color, black, white, or otherwise, because my politics are all you know the radical black left. And you know, he basically is a petit bourgeois black liberal, and you know, he's saying is like, you know, no one's going to support this 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 saying this this radical. I mean, the fact that he calls Sanders a radical uh, is yeah. comical. I mean, are you joking me? Yeah. This is, this is, I mean, it, 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 it's a farce. As yeah. we on the left in in true left spaces know, Sanders is being eviscerated. Even on my own publication, Black Agenda Report, for his 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 complicity with empire imperialism and and, vari- and various other uh, engagements internationally as well, and that he would just basically be a pseudo socialist based on imperialism. Yep. And you know, I understand that there are many people you know on the left. Adolf Reed is one of them who are supporting Sanders. They believe that he's creating a good opportunity to get you know you know socialism expressed in people's mind. I would argue that he's not advocating socialism because socialism is an international movement right. of justice for poor and working class. And one could stop. one could make the argument that he's corrupting the, na- exactly. the notion That's of socialism one of my, one by, of my major arguments by, by tainting Bernie, it. Yep. One is one of my problems with Bernie Sanders is that he's creating a uh, notion of socialism uh, in the minds of Americans, <clears throat> particularly Black Americans, that is not true with the the, the African American history mm-hmm. of. Embracing anti-capitalism and socialism, which has always been rooting in not only being anti-capitalist, anti-racist, but also anti-imperialist. This goes back from the Black Panthers to Paul Robeson, even the boys, the black communists of the early 20th century, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, and I think there's a lot for us, you know, who consider ourselves on the left to critique about Sanders. Sure. But him not supporting reparations, considering that Obama has been opposed to reparations to 2008, is not exactly high on the priority list. Exactly. Um, I make the argument that that was a pretext to do the the ultimate hit job uh, on Sanders in light of his rising popularity among young black uh, college educated. That's where I'm that's where I'm at, too. All right. Let's let's take a break. We're going to come back from the break. A bunch more uh, to discuss. Um, Great, great stuff. Pascal Robert, uh, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. Be right back. Put forth a vision representing school of thought. Grind it out with the others for that number one spot. I'm scared of reality. I'd rather just embrace it. No religious views, but that don't mean that I'm faithless. Based on rational grounds, it's in the people. Socialism's dead. Well, here's the starting of the sequel. Far as I'm concerned, it should be common sense that our current way of life ain't really life to begin with. Starting human history will be the very onslaught of the revolution when this clash shit'll stop. Or maybe I should say, rather kicked in the high gear. Capitalist fools will be running off in fear. Ideas don't change the world alone. People have to. Do it. And with the people's enemies, our struggle must be ruthless. Beaten down, lied to, often feeling tired. But a single spark can start the entire uprising. I will never be subservient. Trust in their process. Truly, it's played out as past being monstrous. First U.S. revolution was indeed progressive. But quickly, the star-spangled banner would correct this. I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist. That means I keep it militant. The boss man's nemesis, rep the organizers, nine to five grinders, homeless in the town, trotting true freedom fighters. I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist. That means I keep it militant. The boss man's nemesis, rep the organizers, nine to five grinders, homeless in the town, trotting true freedom fighters. 
organizers, nine to five grinders. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Pascal Robert. I mean, so much, so much good analysis from him. I mean, you can see why I wanted to have him on the program. I follow his work regularly. I really, really recommend you do that as well. Find all his stuff. Uh, he's at Huffington Post. He's at Black Agenda Report, Breaking Brown. Uh, his blog, thoughtmerchant.wordpress.com. And follow him on Twitter at, Pas- uh, oh, excuse me, at P. Robert 06. That's P. Robert 06 on Twitter. Um, Pascal, we were talking earlier in the week when I when I asked you to come on the program. We were talking a little bit about the presidential campaign uh, on the Democratic side and Bernie Sanders and his surging poll numbers. And you asked me a very interesting question um, whether I thought that there was any validity to the idea that Sanders might actually be made president and that certain segments of the ruling class might support that for a variety of reasons. And my response to you was, I'm not buying the Sanders phenomenon at all, at all, because to my mind, elections in the United States are mere political theater, that these selection processes are determined by finance capital, and all evidence still shows that finance capital is behind Hillary Clinton. So I'm not buying Bernie Sanders, but tell us what you think about this issue, whether Sanders is now seen as viable by certain elements of the ruling establishment, and do you actually see that playing out? Okay, my my personal opinion on this is that I do not believe that Bernie Sanders is going to be president of the United States ever at all, and I do not I I I I'm strongly doubt that he's going to get the Democratic nomination because I am I'm quite familiar with the Democratic no- nomination process, and I know how much of a rigged system it is. The superdelegate system pretty much assures that anyone who was outside the traditional palette of what is acceptable in the Democratic Party will not get the nomination. And one of the biggest errors that many people who are Sanders supporters make is that they compare him to a in 2008, you know, you know, you know, he wasn't an inside guy. Obama was getting Wall Street money from the top, from the drop, from say the word "go," you know, in his senatorial election. Even in, in, people fail to realize that Obama does not come out of this community organizer charade that people pay him. This yeah. guy was working in what people call in Chicago fire in finance, capital, insurance, and real estate. These are the people who were the Pritzker money in Chicago. These were the people who, in the foundation world, the liberal elite foundation world, is what hatched this experiment called Obama. And, you know, I mean, I, I, wrote, I wrote the piece of Black Agenda Report, I'm sure you're familiar with, Barack Obama's Wall Street's perfect Manchurian candidate. Mm-hmm. From 2005, Obama was having meetings with Bob, with, with Bob Rubin, who was, yeah. the, you know, the, the most sinister figure in finance capital probably in the last 50 years, orchestrated the crash of 2008 while working as Secretary of Treasury for Bill Clinton. And Obama talked about, look at these guys. I look up to them. You know, these are the guys who really, really, really have the ideas. So to think that Barack Obama was some kind of outsider who was challenging the establishment and that Bernie Sanders, as much as we critique Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, as far as I know, has never demonstrated himself to be a manufactured creation of the power elite finance capital. No, he's he's definitely not that. You know, 
You know, so the analogy between Sanders and Obama fails on that level because if you look at the actual fundraising, you go to OpenSecrets.org, you go to the, the, the record, Obama was matching the amount of money Hillary Clinton had from finance capital early in the election before Iowa. So you have to ask yourself, how is it that, you know, there's a certain basic question you have to ask about Barack Obama. How is it a guy who is, you know, a black guy who is a, not even a complete first-term U.S. senator, who is a Democrat, and this is a fact. No one talks about this. How is it that in 2008, Barack Obama gets more money from the oil industry, the energy sector that usually goes Republican? How is it that in 2008, he gets more money from the edge energy sector, not only than his Republican opponent, but from and more money than any prior presidential candidate for 20 years. That's a fact. You can go to OpenSecrets.org and you can find it. This guy in 2008, as a Democrat, black guy, allegedly no connection to the, the energy sector, he got more money from the energy sector, the oil industry, in 2008 than any presidential candidate, including George W. Bush, going back to the 88 election. And you're going to tell me this guy was an outsider? A plant would be a better way to describe it than an outsider, quite honestly. I, so I can't, me, I can't disagree with any of that. I agree with you one hundred percent. Okay, so, so the notion that Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama can be can be considered uh, simpatico for the purpose of analysis in this primary season pre Iowa falls on its face because those are people who really don't understand the background of how this Obama presidency was manufactured yep. and marketed. It, it, so so we we can take that off the table. So I, I agree with you that I think that the, the, the notion that Bernie Sanders is going to be president is is pretty farcical. I think the chances of him getting the Democratic nomination are nil. And I have a good friend of mine who was a big, big, she's like Hillary is done. She's a Haitian sister who basically does not like the Clintons because as you and I know, their long track record of damaging oh, Haiti. We're about she's, to get to that. Yep. Yeah. She's like, you know, you know, Clinton, Hillary's done. Hillary's done. And I was like, Hillary's not done. No she's way. like, what? San, San, Sanders is going to get it. Sanders is going to get it. And I keep saying to her, I said, you know, I said, listen, I said, Hillary Clinton, not only let me, and this is why I was, I was telling someone on social media, Hillary Clinton, the Clintons are at the stage where no longer are they serving the interests of the power elite. They are now the power elite. They are the power elite. They're not just serving their interests. What I'm saying is that with the with the, the creation of the Clinton Global Relief Fund, with the way in which the Clinton presidency has completely taken over the trajectory of the Democratic Party, they are not only at the service of the establishment; they are fully the establishment They're, and they, the, they've been admitted into the class yes exactly they have been completely admitted to the class they are simpatical with the agenda and 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 i think you and i are in agreement in that the agenda of the next president of the united states is going to be war whether you want to call it world war three whatever you want to call it but it's going to have to be some kind of massive military conflagration probably in the middle east and otherwise to recalibrate the system of global finance capitalism and geopolitics that is somewhat showing fissures and potential collapse right now the, at the stock market is problematic. The Chinese economy is problematic. You know, Syria, Russia, the, 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 the commodities market is being fraudulently manipulated by the United States with the Saudis overproducing oil. So 
global finance capitalism and geopolitics are at a crisis point, and as you have so eloquently illustrated, every hundred years, every centennial period, they get at these crisis points. 1915, we had World War I. Uh, you know, 1815, we had uh, the, the, the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, you know, in the 1700s, there were war in Europe. 1600s, we had the 30-day war. So your analysis that there is a kind of, uh, you know, mechanism on which the global elite have used to plan out their nefarious actions on the geopolitical stage that works on a kind of centennial-based clock, a century-based clock that kind of requires them at this moment in which the confluence of the crisis of finance capitalism globally and the geopolitical fissures in the world are so great that the only way to reset the chessboard is to to basically call for a, a global conflagration, a massive, massive war, perhaps on a world war scale, if you will. And I think you and I are kind of in agreement in that. And I am. And Hillary is the agent to do it. Hillary is the woman. She's the girl. Because what happens is that we have to understand how the Democratic Party identity politics charade has worked so well. Barack Obama gave the power elite things that they could never get from a Republican. That's right. Never get the TPP. Are you joking me? Yep. Complete giving up of 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 of, uh, of political sovereignty to corporations internationally. If a Republican, to, to, if a Republican would have been pushing the TPP, every union would have been in the street. You would have seen millions of people demonstrating in the streets. The entire uh, union wing of the Democratic Party would be leading massive protests. There would be, I mean, it 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 just it it couldn't happen. Obama, as um, you know, many of our mutual friends over at BAR have said was the more effective evil. Exactly. And, and I do agree with that. And I think that in light of all of the things that you were just mentioning globally, um, I think that certainly there is a very real thinking in the ruling establishment that this is now the moment when we need our war president. And who is the war president on the horizon? It's It ain't Bernie Sanders and it ain't Donald Trump. No, exactly, exactly. Because Don, Donald Trump is actually kind of using left-like discourse. Let the Russians go out and fight in Syria. Let them take out ISIS. He's not really demonstrating this, the type of... of of, of internationalist bloodlust that we know that Hillary Clinton would be so willing to carry out in the name of empire. And, and the, 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 the reason why I presented the Bernie Sanders question to you, and this is, I mean, talk about kind of like a conspiracy theory, but this is a result of something that I saw uh, uh, a commentator on an online broadcast basically saying that his argument is that the power elite would likely give Bernie Sanders the presidency, because it would be an effective way to create, to give a socialist face to the imperialist enterprise and more effectively neutralize dissent than the traditional identity politics route the Democrats have used, i.e. use a black man now and use a woman next. So in other words, they're questioning whether the, the identity politics con game will work as effectively with Hillary and they're saying maybe the you know I'm you know I'm your daddy's socialist kind of guy you know with the fuzzy ha- fuzzy white hair will be a better neutralizer of of the masses and that because Bernie is down with imperialism we do know that there's no question about that yes, and certainly. that 
Bernie Bernie would carry out, you know, the marching orders of the global, you know, you know, you know, geopol- geopolitical elite in terms of you know, of carrying out that war. And the, the analysis and my I carried his analysis further. I was saying so. So what you're saying is that Bernie Sanders could be like an FDR of the 21st century. In other words, save capitalism with a New Deal domestic agenda, which he wants anyway with the economic engine of a global war that lasts about five years, millions of people around the world get destroyed, and then global capitalism is saved again and carries, out, carries its way to the 22nd century the same way the New Deal did. And, I, you know, because, you know, you and I are simpatico, we understand that there is definitely a kind of global elite management, I, I, I processed the theory in my mind, and I was like, it's interesting, but I'm, I'm just not buying it. I'm not buying that global finance capital in America today is at the point where they are so on the precipice of collapse that they're willing to give the rock, as we That's say right. in urban, urban colloquialism, to a, you know, a socialist, a pseudo-socialist of any variety, whether democratic or otherwise, to quote-unquote save. I don't believe that capitalism is in that much of a crisis. It is in a crisis, but you got to understand, they've used the, the commodities market and, and overproducing oil to really, really put a kink, a kink in the Russians' armor. You know, the Chinese are having their economic problems. You know, the, the South American, the Global South International Alliance of Anti-Capitalism, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in Argentina, whether it's in, in Venezuela, sadly is, is in collapse. Empire is winning. Look, on the global stage let's, right let's, now. Let's remember a couple of things. And I know the analyst you're speaking about is a friend of mine. I respect his views and I, I love him very much, but I also don't agree with that. And I know he was presenting it as a theory, so it is a theory. He's not suggesting that that is 100% absolutely has to happen that way. However, let's remember that in 1929, when the stock market collapsed and the beginning of the depression, which really kicks off in 1931, when the British defaulted on the British pound versus gold, um, you know, creating bank panics and all of the rest of that. At that time, you had a very different kind of global economy. You did not have, for instance, in the United, with the, with regard to the United States, you did not have a petrodollar system. You did not have the dollar as the single most important important uh, vehicle for global trade yet. It wasn't that system didn't exist yet. There are a lot of differences between now and that historical moment, which to me say, even if we saw a major economic global economic crisis on the scale of 2008 or larger, even if we saw that, I still wouldn't say that capitalism was in such an existential crisis that they would completely reverse course with who they want, you know, steering the ship. I'm simply not buying that. Hillary Clinton is merely an extension of what they did with Obama. Hillary Clinton's policies are not only in line with the neocons, which we all know, but they're in line with pretty much the entire imperial consensus from neoliberals, Bigniv Brzezinski, and that sort of imperialism, to Henry Kissinger, her good friend, as we all know, to, you know, all of the various forms of of U.S. militarism and imperialism that, that, that we can think of, including, you know, the worst form of right-wing neocon reactionary politics. So 
I'm simply I'm simply saying that I am standing by what I said two years ago, what I said one year ago, what I said last month, and what I said last week. Hillary Clinton is riding her way into the White House, and there's not anything anybody's going to do about that because this election is a selection process. I agree with you on one contingency, and, I, and this is my contingency. I think that there are questions amongst the Democratic Party uh, ruling elite as to how much the Bernie Sanders sheepdog effect will be able to carry Hillary over, over the threshold to give the illusion of them, her actually winning an election. Pascal, Pascal, hold on one second. Do you really believe that, that, that Bernie Sanders supporters, particularly those who call themselves progressives, are so, so filled with hate at Hillary Clinton that they won't cast their votes for a Democrat against Trump or Cruz? Of course they will. Of course yeah. they will. They'll yeah. hold their noses. They'll say, I don't like Hillary. I hate her. What she did to Bernie was terrible. She's, dis- she's a disgrace, but I can't allow Trump to be president. I'll vote for Hillary. You know that's what's happening. Right. I, I, I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with it. Here's, a, here's another question, though, is that uh, these email scandals that Hillary is facing right now, this is the only thing that I'm, I'm asking myself. I think that there is some there there. I think that there is some fire uh, uh, under those sparks. My question, the question I'm wondering is that are they going to completely put it on, you know, put it under the rug, push it under the rug? And will it come out? And will the Democratic establishment be forced to create a contingency plan for Hillary? Because I think the deadline for someone jumping in is like March. Will they have to say, okay, Biden, jump in, Kerry, jump in? Because, in other words, is there a chink in the Clinton armor that is is outside of the control of the power elite that could actually put a kibosh on the whole uh, charade and basically force her to, 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 to sit out? Do you think that's something that's possible and that they will have to recalibrate and reassess if that was the case? Well, I think it's possible, but I'll, I'll say this. Does, well, let me, let me pose a counter question, and it's kind of my answer. Do you believe that Hillary Clinton would be suffering at the poll with all the poll numbers and everything else because of, the, because of this scandal and everything? Do you think all of that would be happening if it weren't for Fox News harping on this story endlessly? Probably not because they're the only ones who are really affected. They're the ones. They're the ones who are covering this story. And I believe me, I work in an office uh, that where the TV is on Fox News all the time because just that's the channel it's always sitting on. And so I get to watch Fox News a lot. And when I go in the break room to get a cup of coffee, just about every other time I walk in there, they're talking about the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Now, let me ask you this question. Is it do they really have to sweep it under the rug or do they simply have to stop talking about it all the time? I think I think the answer is the latter. As long as the establishment says to their right wing buddies at Fox News, hey, guys, you know what? And I think you need to ease up on the story a little bit. Guess what? Americans will forget all about it. Yeah, that's true. That that's true. That's all it will take. Because I, I there was an article in the Hill, the online publication, the Hill, basically saying that the Obama administration is asking a federal court judge to extend the email production deadline because of the current snowstorm in D.C. 
uh, beyond uh, January 29th, and we know, of course, that's the Iowa primary, close to Iowa primary time, because because of the snowstorm, they need more time. And I, I, that came out on Friday, and you know Friday is document dump document day. Document dump day, yep. Yeah, you know, say bad news comes out on Friday for, for whatever faction. So I'm saying, okay, if they're asking for an extension, there's got to be some, there's some smoke in there, in there. There's, there's something there. Oh, they no don't want doubt. To... There's no doubt there's there's a fire there. I mean, there's no doubt that she committed a criminal act uh, from from all indications in, in right-wing and not right-wing sources. Uh, it seems like she committed a crime, but that's never stopped anybody from being a president. Uh, that's that's a good point. <laughs> that's true. That's true as well. But I'm just I'm I mean that is the one thing that's make me making me kind. Of, I still do not believe that Sanders will either be the president or the nominee. But what I'm saying is that will they have to recalibrate completely and go with, go with an alternative if this comes out? You know, it doesn't change my yeah. position on San, on San. There's no way that Bernie Sanders, with the way in which the Democratic primary structure is set up with the superdelegates, Super Tuesday being with a lot of southern states, I do not see in any way Bernie Sanders becoming the Democratic well, there nominee. Is, there, is one, there, is one, there is one element here that should be discussed. I, somebody sent me a link. I don't, I, maybe you did. I don't even remember. Uh, so the story is now coming out that Mike Bloomberg wants to jump into this We were race. just talking about right, this. Right. Yeah, Bloomberg is so, jumping in. So, okay. Now, here's, there's, there's two possibilities here. So, obviously, Bloomberg jumps in as an independent who can fund his own campaign, who doesn't have to worry about the primaries and whatever. Bloomberg then becomes the savior for the entire Republican establishment, who all love him anyway, because he is a Republican. I live in New York. I could tell you, this guy, I mean, give me a break. This is He's just standard, standard Republican privatizer and all of the rest of that with some New York characteristics as far as social liberal policies but he is he is uh, he is a degenerate of the highest order and um i can see an entire segment of the republican establishment thanking their lucky stars that bloomberg gets into this race because then they can destroy trump they can destroy cruz they can distance themselves from all of these ridiculous uh the, these ridiculous idiots uh that are running on the republican uh on the republican side and they have what they consider to be not only a viable candidate but one that they actually like now I could see that playing out. Now, I wonder whether he would run as an independent or if he should run as a Republican to save <coughs> that party. I don't really know. That's according a potential possibility. Times, according, according to the Times, he's thinking about running as an independent. That's what he always says. That's what he always says, and that's maybe what he could do. But would he be doing that because he's really an independent, or would he be doing that so he doesn't have to go through the guillotines of the Republican primaries where you have to be a complete you know, Christian evangelical nut job to survive let's, them? You know what I mean? Let's, let's put the cards on the table. If Michael Bloomberg enters the election now he's acting as a spoiler for somebody the question is who that's that's well either that either either that or mike bloomberg enters into the race because he believes that the republican establishment is so terrified of trump that they'll vote for an independent over trump well well, uh I don't necessarily think so much it's that the estab- because there you know there are rumblings there are some people who are who are arguing I've heard I've seen uh, freaking Joe Scarborough say this I, I don't know how much how much veracity I give it that there are people in the Republican elite establishment 
who would rather Hillary oh, there's than, no doubt. Any, than any of the top yes. Republican contenders right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. And I believe on not, I'll go even one step further. Not only do they want to see that, they will vote for her and they will turn out their bases to vote for her too. That I, I will say that right now, that if Hillary Clinton is running against a Donald Trump or a Ted Cruz, Hillary Clinton snags the entire center right. The entire yeah. moderate wing of the Republican Party goes for Hillary Clinton because she is essentially that. I mean, that is right. basically who she is. Right. And what the, what, another thing that I learned that I found fascinating is that the Republican establishment actually hates Ted Cruz more than they hate Donald Trump. I was I was I was I found yeah, that because, shocking. Yes, because Ted Cruz called out Boehner. He attacked you know the all of the you know standard Republican suits and the the government shutdown that Cruz was really responsible for. I think a lot of the Republicans or the drive towards the government shutdown. I think they have a lot of resentment towards him from that. And on top of everything else, I don't think Ted Cruz is eligible for the presidency anyway. So, yeah. and I think that a lot of the Republicans know that, and I think that they know that that will come out. Uh, and when a, if a court has to decide it, man, would that be an embarrassment for the party? Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. They hate Trump. They hate Cruz. They like Clinton. And all of, and all the rest of it is just noise. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't see how anyone else rises to the occasion. I see that Kasich is rising in the polls in New Hampshire. You know, ironically, I actually thought that he would have been the best way to neutralize Hillary. And I tell you, I thought that a Kasich-Rubio ticket would have been a death knell to the Hillary campaign because that gives him Iowa, it gives him Florida. This guy got 26% of the black vote in his re-election, re-election bid in 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 in, in, in uh, well, I'm not sure oh, it gets Ohio. Him, I'm not sure it gets him Iowa. Nah, excuse me, Ohio. Right, Ohio, Ohio, sure. Um I look, the the sen- that would have been sensible, but uh, the Republican Party is such a it, it has moved so far to the right that their primaries basically prevent exactly what you just described. I mean, you can't even survive Republican primaries uh, with the kind of you know call it center right uh, politics that Kasich and um, uh, Rubio represent. Um, so look, I think uh, ultimately, uh, like I said already, ultimately, I don't think that there's anybody on the Republican side who is viable. I don't think that Bernie Sanders is viable or is going to get the nod. Well, it's well, Hillary. Listen, well, listen, let's take your theory and use it to the Republicans. If we are saying that who the power elite finances is going to be that person on both sides. The power elite are still financing Jeb Bush heavy, but he's yeah. going nowhere. Yeah. So how I, does that work with, I'm, with Well, I got to tell you, I'm shocked. For, first of all, I think they are too, quite frankly. I think that a lot of people are shocked as to how bad Jeb has performed, and I think that that's an example of uh, one of those times that they made a bad investment. I think that they thought that their investment was sound, and it obviously wasn't. But that is not the case with Hillary Clinton. Okay, so what you're saying is that basically they put their chips... Well, you can make the argument that they put their chips on on Jeb as a contingent, but they really wanted Hillary anyway, and they were willing to take the loss with him. I thought it was I thought it was going to be a Hillary, a Hillary-Jeb election where Wall Street wins no matter what happens. Right, 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 right. But the Jeb side, the, the Jeb but the side, Jeb side collapsed, and it opened up the, wi- the the a window for all of these nut jobs, including Trump and Cruz. And now they're really scrambling to try to make sure that Hillary gets in there. 
Well, how do you, and, and, you know, and to play the role of those who are saying that Hillary is toast, how do you react to the coverage in the New York Times, the coverage in the Wall Street Journal, the coverage in the establishment press that has been somewhat kind of, uh, kind of uh, glum, to say the least, on Hillary, but yet they are still, they, they are starting to up the attacks on Bernie. Well, how do you respond well, to the fact okay. that... Okay, let me, let, me, let me say this. When the corporate media, and it is the corporate media, when the corporate media speaks with a single voice, it should always raise a red flag. What is it that they're trying so desperately to convince everybody of? They want everybody to believe Hillary is done. And why? Would the establishment really, as you correctly noted earlier in our conversation, Hillary and Bill are not only working for the establishment, they are part of it. They are within the ruling class. Do you really believe that the ruling class and their corporate media appendages have all just turned around and dumped Hillary Clinton overnight uh, in favor of Bernie Sanders? I don't buy that for a second. They are setting up a... Hillary overcoming the odds, Hillary overcoming adversity, Hillary the fighter, Hillary the rebel, Hillary the resistance fighter. That is what they're setting up. Look, she overcame the the, the poll numbers. She overcame the media. She overcame the scandal and and Fox News and the Republicans and all of them to rise like the proverbial phoenix to carry the Democratic Party into the White House. That is what they're setting up in my mind. I mean, it's plausible because because listen, you know the the whole argument that Bruce Dixon kind of uh, made that many Bernie Sanders supporters think is a, a farce that Bernie works as a sheepdog for Hillary, and what does that mean? Is that Bernie brings in left Democrat interest into the arena, and they get ginned up. And then when he loses, he he pushes his support on to her. Not only that, not only that, absolutely, and I agree with that. But on top of that, Bernie lends credibility to this process. Exactly. I was about to say that. Yeah, yeah. Bernie Sanders, you know, it's like when you buy a ticket to a fight. You you know, you you may know that the champion, the the heavyweight champ is going to win, but you still want to see a good fight. You know, you still want to see a good fight. Exactly. And I think that. It's theater, man. It's theater. In order to neutralize the taint of a of 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 a coronation of yep. that you know the yep. orchestration of this Bernie shenanigans allows them to kind of you know say like wow the Democrat because it, because in terms of the actual numbers the Democratic Party base membership and electorate is not as energized about this election of course as the Republicans are of course how could they and be they, they right exactly particularly after eight years of Obama that is. Very dangerous for Democrats because what do Democrats need that Republicans always have? They need turnout. Yep. They need turnout. You know, I mean, one of the biggest reasons I thought that Hillary Clinton was going to lose early on, and the thing that made me change my position on Hillary, and I said, no, she's going to get it, is when I watched the uh, the Republican investigation on the Benghazi on the Benghazi uh, yep. on the Benghazi scandal. When I saw that in the fall, and I saw how they intentionally botched it, I was like, oh no, she's it, she's the one. Yep, 
setting it up, setting it up so that she came out in front of that, in front of that uh, Senate subcommittee, you know, the investigation. She came out looking, looking like a champ. They all looked like ridiculous chumps. And exactly. I, I watched that. I watched that theater play out. And I said, once again, I reiterate, this is Hillary all the way. Yeah, that's once I saw the way she had because that to me that was the benchmark, that was the tense test. I want to see how this Benghazi hearing goes. When I saw the way, that was a great week for her. It was right after the Sanders first debate. She had seemed like she had kind of vanquished Sanders in the debate. She had a wonderful week, and then and then I think it was one or two weeks after the debate, she goes into the Benghazi the Benghazi uh, hearing, and she comes out smelling like roses. Yep. I was like, oh no, no, I was like, this is she's it. Yep, I was no, like, I. No I thought the same thing, and I, I, I still think that. And look, I, I get it. I understand why people are getting, you know, excited about Sanders, why people think he has a real chance. But again, I just, I, I, I have to return to the fundamental point. There is no such thing as a democracy in the United States. There is no such thing as a real legitimate election. There is a process that is managed and controlled that is dominated by finance capital and who finance capital wants, that's who finance capital gets. And I'm not buying that finance capital wants Bernie or anybody who's not named Hillary. I would I would expand it to not only finance capital, but you know the the military industrial complex, well, the, right. uh, the, the the telecom industry, which is all you know, which is all the pharmaceuticals, which is the, all the under the broad exactly. I agree, which is all in my mind under the under the broad umbrella of Wall Street, which dominates everything. the 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 world doesn't move without the the movement of capital, which is in the hands of the financial elites. Of course, absolutely, big pharma, big oil, big agri agribusiness. All of those, they're all part of that same system. Right. I, just, I use the, uh, the C-Wright Mills term, the power elite. The power That's elite. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, C-Wright exactly. Mills is absolutely uh, essential reading. Um, okay. We are out of time. So what we're going to have to do is I'm going to have to have you back to talk about Haiti. Uh, a lot a lot to discuss going on there. But uh, unfortunately, we are out of time now. So you heard it. Pascal Robert. Amazing, amazing analyst, amazing uh, uh, writer. You need to follow his work at uh, thoughtmerchant.wordpress.com, regularly published in Black Agenda Report, Breaking Brown, uh, Huffington Post, and many other places. Follow him on Twitter at probert06. That's P-R-O-B-E-R-T-06. Pascal, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure, Eric. I really enjoyed it. I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, listeners. Speak to you soon. 